Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson, Louise Cowan Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is our program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate feedback, so please rate and review this episode and all other episodes. Also, send us your comments. You can reach us at anchored at cltexam.com, and we'll select a few of the best ones to share on our upcoming episode. Before we get started, I'd like to go over our next test dates. We have the CLT on September 26th and the CLT 10 on October 20th. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Dr. Jessica Hooten-Wilson is Louise Cohen Scholar-in-Residence at the University of Dallas in the Classical Education and Humanities Graduate Program. She earned her PhD in Literature and Theology from Baylor University, a Master's Degree in English from the University of Dallas, and a Bachelor's Degree in Creative Writing from Pepperdine University. She is the author of three books, Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received the 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award, also, Walker Percy, Fedor Dostoevsky, and the Search for Influence, and reading Walker Percy's novels. In 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize for Humanities from the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. Currently, she is preparing Flannery O'Connor's unfinished novel, Why Do the Heathen Range, for publication. Dr. Wilson, welcome. Oh, I'm excited. Fantastic. So uh, a busy summer. Uh, we want to jump right in. Uh, it was it was a big deal. June 22nd, I'm thinking back. Uh, this article broke in the New Yorker. I saw it shared on multiple social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, titled, How Racist Was Flannery O'Connor? And immediately I thought of you. I thought of Dr. Jen Frey, people who love and are leading scholars on Flannery O'Connor. What was that like for you just when you first saw that and read that? Or did you already know that it was coming? I did not know it was coming. I had actually just reviewed Angela O'Donnell's book about race, which was where Paul Ely was getting a lot of his quotes. And um, that book was a thorough examination. It was handled diplomatically. There was room there for conversation. People could go back and forth on it. And I had just reviewed it for first things when Ely's piece came out, which was rather one-sided actually blindsiding everyone who read it um, and not really considering O'Connor fairly or um, really open to debate on the issue. Even the incendiary title was kind of showing which pe- way people should lean. Yeah. So my, my theory, I, I want to hear if you think there's any ground to this, but, but I wonder if, because it seemed like the article itself, the content was not nearly as dramatic as the title. Right. And at an age where 95% of people share things without ever reading them on Twitter or mm-hmm. on Facebook. Uh, I wonder if maybe the New Yorker came up with the title. Maybe Paul uh, Ellie did not. And uh, I, I wonder if, it, if this is in some ways a product of just the soundbite kind of social media uh, age that we're in. Well, Paul didn't come up with the title. I mean, it definitely was meant to provoke responses. At the same time, labeling people was what was happening in the piece. I mean, he was talking about O'Connor in a way that was going to connect the label to her. 
which is, you know, rather unhelpful, <laughs> um, especially in a culture right now where we're saying, you know, labels aren't great. Maybe instead of saying someone's schizophrenic, we say they suffer from schizophrenia. I don't know why we're not applying the same thing. Maybe instead of calling someone racist, we say they're suffering from racism. They are suffering through racism. They're, you know, something that we're dealing with uh, rather than something that defines us. So take us back a bit. Um, How did this deep love that you have for Flannery O'Connor, where did this come from? Did you just discover her one day kind of randomly? I'd love to hear some of the backstory here. Sure. The backstory goes back really far. I was a kid who wanted to be a novelist and uh, wrote a lot of dark pieces, very gritty pieces. And um, my parents were worried for my soul because they were Christian and, and really encouraged me to write rather light and fluffy things. I went to Rhodes College for a summer program when I was 15 and the professor was dumbstruck. He was not a Christian and he was confused because I seemed to have some sort of talent but yet I was using it to write poorly done PBS sitcoms. And uh, instead he gave me Flannery O'Connor. He gave me my first O'Connor short story. It was the life you save may be your own. And he said, Uh you know, if you're a Christian who wants to do grit, do this, write this. And I imitated that story and I won a national scholastic arts award and got to go, you know, my hand was shook by Hillary Clinton as she passed me the award in DC. And Mm -hmm. it was, it just felt like, wow, like Flannery was on something like this is the right way to do things is, is really to write grit well, to write grit in a way that, that showcases the light. And, um, and so I've just been addicted to her ever since really spent my whole life kind of imitating her. Take us back through kind of the timeline this summer. So we, we go from this, this New Yorker article and the speed that this moved to where you have Loyola taking down her name from the dorm within what, six weeks or a couple months. Take us through the timeline. How did this all happen? You know, it actually happened the very day. That's what's frustrating about it. People saw what happened at Loyola six weeks later, but the day the New Yorker piece came out, those of us who are in O'Connor studies were receiving emails from the students and faculty at Loyola campus saying, I think we're going to cancel O'Connor. I think we're going to take her name off the building. Will you sign this petition? Uh, so it, it was right after that. And it was an immediate response. And that way it made me feel like it wasn't very thoughtful. I'm sure the Loyola students were trying to do something good. I bet most of them didn't have a lot of familiarity with Flannery, but they didn't want to walk into a dorm Hall that said Flannery O'Connor, if all they knew of her was suddenly that she was racist, right? Not knowing anything else, get her name off the building. I mean, I think that was the the impetus is just a really a lack of awareness, a lack of um, going into the debate with any information. For me, I, this has been something that it takes a lot more discernment rather than just a reaction to people suddenly recognizing that she um, that she had these problems and that she you know, didn't necessarily see everything clearly. Uh, I'm also, I'm currently teaching Chesterton. So to kind of add a layer to it, um, Chesterton, you read him through this cancel culture lens and it's like, well, it's only a matter of time because he's anti-Semitic. And, um, and you just realize people can't, can't approach literature this way. (laughs) It's, uh, it's not fair to the writers. You're going to miss out on so much if you are unable to recognize that people are complex right? <laughs> well, um, so some of our, our, our listeners today, you know, they may maybe have only heard of her for the first time this summer as all of that happened. Um, if you're going to describe Flannery O'Connor and, and her role in, in uh, American literature in, in 30 or 60 seconds, mm-hmm. 
what would you say about somebody who's hearing this name for the first time? Who is she and what did she do that she's so monumental? Well, Flannery O'Connor is really the only Orthodox Christian writer that America has. Ralph Wood has made this argument. So if you Google his name and Flannery mm-hmm. O'Connor, Christian writer, you can find something um, stronger on, on this from his perspective. But it is true. I mean, you have all of these great Amer- American Christian American writers who aren't Christian. You have Hemingway, you have Steinbeck, you have Faulkner, and they don't have a deeply rooted Orthodox faith. And O'Connor does. I mean, in that sense, she was she was kind of our person. She was the person that we really could look to in the canon and recognize um, that she was going to be in all the anthologies. And here was someone who believed in Jesus. And uh, that was kind of a rare thing for for Christians to be able to find in the canon. Could this be good in terms of a resurgence of just interest in her work? You know, I have been really grateful for a lot of the Black Lives Matter protest and the attention that those have received because it's helped a lot of writers come to the forefront that I maybe would not have read. And so my work on O'Connor, I think, has been deepened by having to, not having to, but really compelled to read a lot of Black writers during her time that I she wasn't reading. And so I wasn't reading to know her thought. But instead, now I'm getting to read these writers and put them in conversation with her in a way that I probably wouldn't have done in this project. Um, had it not been for this current culture. So I think there's a, there are a lot of silver linings. I'm hoping that when my book comes out, there will be a more fair uh, reading and understanding of her work, um, getting to see what it was she was working on at the end of her life. So I, I'd love to hear more about where this is at. So this is an incredible honor. So, so Flannery O'Connor's family could kind of commission you to finish the book that she never finished. Uh, is that accurate? Somewhat, yes. <laughs> so Billy Sessions was an O'Connor friend, and he was working on her biography. So it was really Billy that I got to know. I did get to meet Louise and Francis Florencourt as well, uh, so I, I had their approval. Uh, but it was mostly Billy Sessions' undertaking that he kind of saw me as a, a possible person to finish this project. And the spirit of, of writing this is the idea to kind of embody uh, the mind of Flannery O'Connor and take this where she would have taken it? I think as much as possible, the difficulty, you know, the difficulty is how much of a revisionist she was. She would revise things to the nth degree. At the end of her life, it was May. So a few months before she died, she does realize that she probably won't have time to revise things the way she wants to. And she gives permission to her agent to go ahead and send the manuscript. You know, she's working on these short stories, send those short stories off to the publisher. As much as she wishes she could revise them, she'd rather just let them see publication than not. Uh, And so I I think that she understood the writing that she left behind probably would see publication. And even though it won't be the way O'Connor would have done it, it's still worth reading and understanding what she was in the process of. You know, these two hats that you wear between researcher and scholar and and author uh, and teacher, how does that work? Uh, Do you have a, a greater passion for one or the other? Or do you find that they constantly kind of reinforce each other? Oh, they definitely reinforce one another. When I was in graduate school, I think the hardest part of my first year of grad school was not getting to teach yet. And I was able to jump back into teaching shortly after that first year in the honors program at Baylor. And that was so rewarding because everything that you're learning feels like now it has a reason that you're getting to pass it on to the next generation. If you're just kind of soaking it all up and it has nowhere to go, it doesn't really feel like you're doing anything worthwhile, right? I mean, who wants to just gain all this wisdom and not be able to carry it on, live it out, pass it on? And so for me, writing and teaching are, are the outlet 
for all of the research and the scholarship that I'm getting to do. Those things very much feed one another. The greatest challenge is students walk into a room expecting to not like your class. Uh, the difficulty is they, they are really utilitarian in their mindset and they don't understand and appreciate the love of useless things. And I mean that with a compliment. Um, you know, uselessness has become such a bad word for most of these students and utilitarian is, is in a sense their religion <laughs> and they don't even know it. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I have to confront students idol of use, um, once I do, and once I break it apart and they recognize that they were, they were made to enjoy things in life, <laughs> um, so much purpose to imagination and goodness and beauty, they really get on board with that. But it, it's the greatest hurdle that I'm up against in the classroom is this idol of use. This is the third podcast we've done. Uh, we had Robbie George on the first, and then we had uh, your current president, uh, President Hibbs at the University of Dallas uh, last week. I'm, I'm so glad you made a, a great transition to a great place. A question I asked Robbie George is very present uh, on social media uh, as a believer, uh, as, a, as a conservative. Uh, and I think it's great because I, I think I, I know so many who are not. I, I've noticed you're, you're breaking into the Twitter world. Um, was that kind mm-hmm. of a conscious decision? And, and what are your thoughts about Jesus loving people uh, being on social media platforms? <laughs> um, that was a conscious decision. There were two reasons I joined Twitter. One was I wrote this piece on Marilyn Robinson a year or two ago. And um, John Wilson, who was the former editor of Books and Culture, he emailed me and he said, you cannot write something this (laughs) provoking and not be on Twitter where everyone's talking about it. (laughs) Um, And I I thought, well, I've never been on Twitter. So let me jump on there and just see what everyone's saying about this. I had never recognized, I, I don't read people's comments on my articles. Um, I'd never done that before. And so I got on Twitter mostly just to see what everyone was talking about. And then I, then I kind of just moved away from it for a while. Um, I got back on it because I'm writing two more books right now with Brazos Press and Brazos Press is a trade publisher. And so they are very much pushing um, to create this relationship with your readers. And, and, with, and I think that is what Twitter is meant for, is to create these kind of relationships between readers and authors, or at least for me. That's, I mean, I'm not in politics or anything like that, so I'm sure there's other uses for it. But for authors, I know a lot of authors who get on there um, just to be able to connect with people. Their, their, their classroom is the world now, and Twitter's the best way to access that larger classroom. That's great. So you're, here you are, you're writing multiple books, you're a professor, you're a young mom with young kids, uh, and you love literature. How uh, do you find time for your own leisure reading? Uh, is that kind of a, a discipline? And if so, what are you reading right now, and do you recommend it? Sure. Um, I have the benefit of getting to ask at this point if um, if I want to read something for fun, I just ask, okay, who wants a review of this? Because I'm going to read it for fun anyways. <laughs> Does anybody want to like have a conversation with me and let me write about it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am reviewing books and, but those are my leisure reads. So I'm reading Alan Jacobs breaking bread with the dead right now, mm-hmm. okay. um, that I, I highly recommend it. It actually confronts what we're talking about here with the cancel culture is this idea of, um, if all the writers that came before us were racist and sexist, like, why are we reading them? Let's just only read people that are part of the contemporary conversation. And Jacobs mm-hmm. is saying, no, like you would miss out on so much. And so he kind of goes through this beautiful apology of the necessity to have 
um, density to have a temporal bandwidth that looks into the past so that you really can assess the present well and yeah. also step into the future well. So it's a beautiful book. Um, and then also I'm reading Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black. It's another one that I'm reviewing right now. And I highly recommend that as well. Um, just kind of looking at an interpretive lens, African-American perspective on scripture and and the different perspective on different verses, right? Verses that have been weaponized in Americans, America's past um, yeah. and misused. And Esau's kind of recovering them from that misuse. What text has influenced you uh, the most and why? Oh man, for me, it's a class. I mean, it's the divine comedy, Dante's divine comedy. I purposefully teach every single year of my life. I reread it every single year of my life. It is our journey. It is looking at your life, like this journey that extends beyond you, that is communal, that is transcendent, um, about the role of beauty in that life, about the role of these patterns in the way that we see things about the spiraling ascent that we make through time. And um, so Dante's Divine Comedy, I feel like everything else in literature is a footnote on Dante. (laughs) Like even if you go backwards, like even the Iliad and the Aeneid are kind of footnotes on Dante. So uh, for me, Dante's the defining text. Thank you to you before you go today. It it was a delight a few months ago connecting with you for the first time over the phone. Um, And really at the time having no idea that you had ever heard of CLT before and then discovering in that conversation that uh, you sort of made uh, CLT happen at John Brown University when they accepted it as, a, as an alternative to the SAT and ACT. Uh, and then since that time, you've put your name behind what we're doing and, and joined our, uh, our board of academic advisors, which is just huge for us. So very, very grateful. Yeah, well, the work you're doing is so important. So I am very appreciative of your vocation, and I'm glad ours aligned so well. That's great. And we, we look forward to having you out uh, in Annapolis for the, the CLT Higher Ed Summit whenever it does happen. And <laughs> it was supposed to be early October, and we were, we were really looking forward to having Robbie George as our keynote. But uh, we're, we're looking to reschedule maybe in April or, April or May. Well, I will keep anticipating it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Join us next week when we'll be visited by Dr. Corey DeAngelis, Director of School Choice at the Reason Foundation. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.